0: their way back. I totally forgot to mention something in the beginning that I really do want to highlight. So we started, and I'll talk more about this later on, but we're going to start using these new connection cards. For those of you that have been with us through the summer and been with us for some time, you're thinking, man, this is is new. Um, So yeah, you're right. It is new. Um, Awesome. So Kayla worked super hard on this, um, and so we're super grateful for her doing that. Um, If you've already gotten one of these and started filling it out, hold on to it, okay? This is something that we are going to, as a fellowship, fill out and turn in every week, okay? And so if you've been here like for the past couple of months and you're here every Sunday and we know who you are and we have your information and you're thinking, nope, not for me, I don't need that. Here, you can have mine. No, you need this, okay? This is something that you're going to fill out every week and I'll talk more about that Um, at the end. If you've already explored the back a little bit, you probably know what I'm talking about. You're seeing something that like, oh yeah, that's new, and I can see how that would be uh, something that would be practiced each week. So um, I'll talk more about that at the end, but super grateful for Kayla working really hard to get all that together, just so that we can better communicate with you guys, um, so that we can connect you into opportunities for service here at Christ the King, that we might know a little bit about kind of what the Lord is Um, doing in your hearts each Sunday, okay? Every time we gather together, man, we say this, that like we have to leave out of here changed, or we've got a serious disconnect between what God's Word is uh, intending to do in our lives, right? Um, That we are transformed. We are renewed weekly as we come to approach rest in and on God's Word, and so uh, keep this with you. Uh, I've talked long enough about it for now. We'll touch back with that Later, though. So let me catch you guys up. For those of you guys who maybe have been away for a little while, um, or this is maybe your first time with us, and for those who um, had a crazy week this past week, and you're like, man, I don't know what happened on Wednesday. Let's talk about what happened on Sunday and previous Sundays. We have been, um, for the past couple of months, going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, We spent five weeks in Mark chapter 6. Um, And we are going to finish Mark chapter 7 in two weeks. And so that's kind of the beauty of exposition and seeking to uh, preach and teach God's word where the natural section breaks occur, if that uh, makes sense, right? There's some bigger sections here in chapter 7, and so we're tackling those. And so chapter 6 took us a long time. Chapter 7, man, we've been motoring through it, and we'll finish it. This morning. If you're not familiar with Mark's gospel, maybe you're more familiar with one of the other gospel accounts, or maybe you have no Bible familiarity at all. Let me catch you up for just a moment. Okay, Mark writes in a really, really beautiful way. We'll talk a little bit later again about who he is writing to, um, but we need to know as we approach this text if you're one of those like really fast storytellers, caught up in the details, loving the little things, and like super energetic kind of like I feel like I am sometimes, um, then you're really going to love the way that Mark writes here um, by the inspiration of the Spirit. So um, it's always this, this immediacy. We're moving from one thing to another. He seems constantly, continuously amazed by the work of Jesus, what Jesus is doing. Um, we we've kind of have taken this tagline that Jesus, um, or, or Mark uh teaches or, or writes as though he's a little kid trying to tell, like, this story uh, to his parents after a long day at school, right? This happened, and then this happened, and then, and then this happened, and you won't believe when this happened. That's kind of the style that Mark writes uh, in, which is really cool. I totally, totally love that and dig that, and I'm sure that many of you do as well, But as we come into Mark chapter 7, we look back at where we've been over the past couple of weeks, and we've seen Jesus do some really amazing things. We start chapter 6 with this tragedy of Jesus being rejected in his very own hometown of Nazareth. And then we see the death of John the Baptist. And in between, we see Jesus uh, commissioning and sending his disciples out in his authority to, to, to do some really incredible, miraculous things among broken people, among oppressed people. Um, we see them come back and report all of this. Uh, John uh, is beheaded by kind of, the, uh, kind of the other end of the spectrum king. We've got Jesus, who is the good king, who rules and reigns um, in a righteous way, in a holy way, in a good way. He is the king that our hearts long for and desire, right? And then you have King Herod, right, who has kind of been this, ki- this, counter, uh, this counterbalance to Jesus as we've seen him uh, doing ministry over these last few chapters. He's a wicked king. He's an evil king. He's easily swayed uh, by the opinions and the words of people, whereas Jesus, we've seen the exact opposite. Right? He fed a couple of thousand people right, with a sack lunch. And then he fled from the region because he knew that they were about to take him by force and make him king. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not the way that the kingship of Jesus is established. Right? It's, it's through the cross um, that, that the crown ultimately comes and rules and reigns forever and ever. He's just the self-sacrificial king. That is who Jesus is. Herod, selfish king. Jesus, good Self-sacrificial team, right? That's what Mark is is all about. And so then we see Jesus walk on water. That's pretty incredible. Um, And then last week, we see this back and forth that we'll touch on in just a few moments between Jesus and the religious establishment, Right, through the religious leaders who are seeking um, to to harm Christ, right, or to trap Christ, and we'll talk more uh, about that again in just uh, in just a few moments. Then this morning we come in to this really cool section uh, at the very end of Mark chapter seven, and so I want to give us this big idea that I want us to work on wrapping our arms around over our time together, okay? So if you're a note taker, this would be something really helpful to write down that we are at the end of our time hopefully going to look back on and go, yeah, okay, totally, I see that from Mark chapter 7 uh, verses 24 uh, through the end. And that main idea is this. So if you take notes, write this down. I think it will be super helpful. And there's a lot of C's in the beginning. Like, that was not intentional. It just kind of happened, okay? It's kind of like I'm going to have to say it slow or Chelsea's going to laugh at me the the whole time. So um, here it is, the cross-cultural care of Christ. I told you. Impressive, right? It just happened. That's what happens in Mark 7. The cross-cultural care of Christ does something, okay? It transforms our understanding of the heart of God. Our posture of worship and engagement in mission. You can see like half of it up there and the other half has disappeared. And so let me give it to you um, again at one time. The cross-cultural care of Christ transforms our understanding of the heart of God. So if you're here this morning and you're at all confused about the heart of God, we're going to try to clear some of that up. Okay, where we're going to see the heart of God on display as we close out Mark chapter 7 here this morning. We see our posture of worship transformed and our engagement in mission or our engagement on mission. For those of you guys who have been on campus for like like 48 hours, right? Like welcome to mission, right? Welcome to this region, this area, this city, this campus that the Lord has planted you on for this season that you might, as uh, his representative, live as a missionary, right? Like, you are on mission here for Christ, okay? That's the reality. And for those of us who have, are here, right, and we've been here for a while, man, we continue to turn over the soil, right? We continue to cast seed. This is mission. Mark chapter 7 informs that for us. And so we're going to see three things as we close out our time here in Mark 7. We're going to see the heart of God. We're going to see a beautiful faith, and then we're going to see a gospel response. The heart of God, a beautiful faith, and a gospel response. And so again, if you're here and you don't know much about the heart of God, as you are introduced to it, I am convinced that as the Spirit of God works in the hearts of people, that we are broken as we are confronted with the kindness of God in light of this deeper understanding of our sin, okay? Here's the reality. Allow me to introduce you to yourself, okay? You are sinful, and I am sinful. We, humanity, have a major, major problem. We've got lots of problems, but we can boil it down to one thing, okay? Rebellious and sinful hearts. That's the reality. That's who we are, okay? But as we're confronted with the heart of God in light of our sin, in light of our depravity, in light of our rebellion, man, it wrecks us, okay? We are wrecked again and again and again and again because we see our brokenness. We see our rebellion. And then we see this kind-hearted God that sends his son to bear the wrath of sin that you and I rightfully deserve in our place so that we might be imputed, that we might receive his righteousness. It's incredible. It's the greatest story ever told, and it amazes us every week. It never gets old. It never gets old. It amazes us every week, and so we will see the heart of God. We'll see a beautiful faith, and then how we respond to this good news, a beautiful response that drives us towards mission. It drives us towards mission. I'm encouraging you each week in mission towards mission something that you have been equipped and called for, okay? Like I'm introducing you again and again and again each week to your joy, okay? So let's meet our joy again this week from Mark chapter 7. Let's go to our passage beginning in verse 24. We're going to have two characters, it's kind of a longer a longer section, so we're going to have two characters. So hang with me as we uh, as we read through uh, here in Mark chapter seven. And from there, verse twenty four, he, being Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not. Be hidden. Here's the reality. You guys ready for this? This is a, a sub point as we work our way into the passage. Christ cannot be hidden. Okay? Christ cannot be hidden. We're introduced to that idea here. It's affirmed and, and, and supported for us right here in Mark, uh, right here in Mark chapter, in Mark chapter seven. Let me get back to my place. I lost it. Um, he cannot be hidden. Verse 25. Immediately a woman whose literal daughter had been uh, had, had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Cypher-Phenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her gone. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And so yet again, we've got two amazing examples of faith In this passage, verse 33, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epitheta, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke Plainly, And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Bless you. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word and for just the time to gather together with your people. We pray that you would open our hearts um, and our eyes and our ears to see and to hear and to celebrate the truths that we see on display here from your word pertaining to your heart. May our understanding of who you are be drastically Informed and perhaps even transformed by what we see here in Mark chapter 7 this morning. And might that encourage us towards a great gospel response to the glory of your name. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So where are we starting? Where do we start this journey? Well, let's start... By exploring the heart of God as we see it on display, not only in this passage, but the entirety of Scripture. Okay? The scriptures are, are one continuous story. A lot of times we like to uh, we like to, to break them up into, into different sections, maybe two sections, Old Testament and New Testament, maybe 66 sections based on different books, letters that we see contained within it. But what we actually see is one story that unfolds over the course of 66 books. One story, God's redemptive story. We see through this, this redemptive story of God, that God has an amazing heart. And so we're going to explore two aspects of the heart of God as we see it displayed, not only here in Mark chapter 7, although especially here in Mark chapter 7, but also over the rest of of scripture. We're going to look at the heart of God for the nations, right, 30,000 feet, and then we're going to zoom down, and we're going to get like ground floor, right, and we're going to see the heart of God for individuals, and so you've got the heart of God for the nations, right, which encourages us and inspires us and moves us and compels us towards diversity as a fellowship and as individuals that we would desire and pursue after diversity in our lives, people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different different places, ages in life, that that would be fairly represented in our life, right, because God loves diversity. God has a heart for the nations. God loves diversity. And so let's start there. Let's start with the heart of God for the nations, God's heart, allow me to introduce you to the heart of God. God's heart is for the redemption of people from all nations and backgrounds on earth. Okay, let me say that one more time, all right? God's heart is for the redemption of people from all nations and backgrounds on earth. Okay, this leads us to... uh, to, to, to sing praises and offer adoration to him, right? Which gets us to really the overarching of it all, which is that God's heart is ultimately for his glory, okay? So, so if we trace that line of thought, God's heart is for his glory, then we see that the heart of God or, or God's character, God, is glorified as his heart, as his plan to redeem a people from all nations and backgrounds on earth is accomplished, as it's embraced, as it's lived out. And it's been this way from the beginning. This isn't a New Testament idea. This isn't simply an Old Testament idea. This isn't a Genesis idea or a Revelation idea. This is the whole idea. This is what it's all about. This is what God is doing. He is redeeming a people, displaying his heart for the nations. Let's look at a couple of passages that reaffirm this idea for us. If anybody's here and they're going, no, I don't know about God's heart for the nations. Well, let's look at a few passages that help inform our understanding of this idea. The first one is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Perhaps this is a familiar passage for you, but perhaps it's not. This is a conversation that God is having with a man named Abram, or Abraham. And he's telling Abraham about how he is going to bless his family. And through the blessing of his family, he's ultimately going to, because he has a heart for the nations, bless The nations, okay? Let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. Man, what an incredible promise from the Lord. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, here it is, all of the families of earth shall be blessed. All of the families of earth. What does that mean? What well, means all of the families of earth, right? That this diverse heart, generous uh, generous heart of, of God. We see a similar theme displayed in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. I will give you, Israel, okay, as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of Israel. The earth. Okay, and so we we see the promise there in Genesis chapter 12 that God is going to take this man and he is going to, from this man and from his family, give way to a nation, a nation of people. His people that he's going to call towards a very particular, very specific task. Through this people, he is going to bless all of the nations of the earth, all of the families of the earth. And we see that progressing a little bit as we go to Isaiah chapter 49. Israel is given as a light to the nations. What does light do? Well, it gives light, right? It, 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 it helps things to be seen. It displays things. If we blacked this room out and we had a single light bulb, we'd all gather around it so we wouldn't be running into mic stands and knocking over music stands, right? It displays things. Something And so what do we see displayed as the salvation of God reaches to the ends of the earth? Well, it's his heart. It's his redemptive plan and purpose among the nations. Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2, we see the prayer of the psalmist. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known on the earth. Thy salvation, here it is, among the nations. And then we come to Mark chapter 7. And we see this continued development of this idea, right? A, A truth that when understood and embraced, changes the way that we see our role individually and corporately in mission to the nations. Informing our understanding of God's heart, informing our understanding of God's mission and our involvement in the mission of God. Look at what we see in verse 24. Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The first half of the story takes place in this region of Tyre. The second half in the region of Sidon. Now let's consider what we've seen over recent weeks. If you go back to Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus addressing the issue of cleanliness with a group of of scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, the religious elitists, to approach Jesus with this question. More a problem, more a beef that they've got going on with Jesus and, and his disciples not washing their hands ceremonially before eating. It has nothing to do with hygiene. Okay? It has nothing to do with dirty hands and spreading diseases and germs. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about ceremonial cleanliness. And they approach Jesus with this question, why do your disciples not clean their hands ceremonially as we have learned from the traditions of the elders? And Jesus goes into this, this really incredible, like, correction. Of, of, hey, it's not what goes in the body that ultimately makes us unclean, but it's what comes out of. Why? Well, because what goes into the body goes into the stomach and then is expelled. What we need to be most concerned about is the condition of the human heart. That is where uncleanliness dwells. The prophet Jeremiah says, what about the human heart? Well, he says that it is, it is wicked above all things, that it's not to be trusted. That is our hearts. And so Jesus is addressing the issue of cleanliness with this group of people, and he's totally changing the paradigm. He's totally changing everything. Right? It's not about the rituals. Right? It's not about washing your hands or observing certain laws or practices because you're unable to do so. You can't. It's all about the condition of the human heart. You need a new heart. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ, in his grace and mercy, provides us with new hearts. Hearts that can now begin to live in accordance with God's word. Right? hearts with with transformed affections, loving God and loving people something that apart from the transformation of the human heart, you and I and everybody else around here are incapable of, of doing and so again we celebrate the gospel but what do we see in Mark chapter uh, in Mark chapter 6 and then even going on into into chapter into chapter 7, Jesus is having this conversation with a group that should be most aware of the coming of the Christ and Jesus' fulfillment of messianic expectation. Right? They should have seen it. They should have known it. And yet, they dismiss Jesus and seek to trap him and discredit him. And so now, as we come into Mark chapter 7, We see Jesus moving away from the elitist and instead purposefully setting his sights on the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, a region, regions occupied not by religious elitists, but by pagans, by by Gentiles, historic enemies of God's people on both sides of the fence. The fact that we see the conversations taking place, that we do in Mark chapter 7, is incredible because you've got two groups of people that have historically not gotten along well. Major beef, major problems between these two groups of people, and yet we see, yet again, humility, right? Desperation that lead one to approach Christ and then Christ to engage them in this most amazing way when we consider the context of what's going on here. The the, the citizens of Tyre and Sidon were seen more as street dogs by the religious establishment than people. And then, as if this scene isn't crazy enough that Jesus engages this particular group of people, that he purposefully sets his sights on this region, we meet this woman. A woman whose little daughter is sick with an unclean spirit. She had heard of Jesus and she came and she fell down at his feet. Now we've said a couple of things about what we notice about the groups of people that surround Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that there are two groups of people that find themselves around Jesus, that it's made up of those who are aware of their condition, who approach Jesus with a posture like this, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. And then you have another group of people that approach Jesus like we saw last week and seek to trap him or discredit him or even kill him. What we see from this encounter is that there is a certain posture that results from a recognition of need. okay when, when you understand your need, when you have come to the end of your rope per se, and we would all connect with this, right? Think about that that time, that season in your life in which you just came to the end of your rope. We've got some young people in here and so perhaps you haven't been brought to the end of your rope yet, but here's the deal, like you will, right? And so when you, when you come to the end of, of the road, right, and you realize your need, you recognize it, there is a certain posture that is produced. And in this story, we see this woman approaching Jesus, not with her chest poked out as though she has some type of moral high ground to appeal to, but instead, she approaches Jesus with this realization of her need, her desperateness. She's caught wind of this guy who is coming to the region who is capable of dealing with this most desperate situation. The woman's daughter being, being oppressed by an unclean spirit. What a terrifying thing. Am I right? And so she sees her need, and in light of of seeing, realizing, recognizing her need and her inability to meet said need, there is a posture of humility that is displayed. Humility even in her boldness. Because we do see her display great boldness through this passage. Verse 26 states that this Gentile woman begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now there's something that we can learn from the text here. The way that it's originally written. And it's not, it's not as though she approached Jesus and she said, Jesus, listen, into my robe, right? Um, real need here, can't do anything myself. Would you mind healing my daughter? And then just waiting. That's not the attitude. That's not the language. That's not the scene that we see displayed in this passage. But there is a continued pleading for her daughter. Imagine her desperateness to approach Jesus. And to make such a bold request for him to do something, again, as we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, that only Jesus is capable of doing. This is one of those, like, not taking no for an answer type things, right? This is, this is not, hey, like, if you could, here you go. This is like, I'm grabbing hold of your leg, right? Like, I'm imploring you, I am pleading with you, heal my daughter, help my daughter. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing anyone in the area can do. No doctor can fix this. No other religious leaders can fix this. Nobody can fix this but you. Would you please, would you please come and heal my daughter? And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with silence initially. He, he, He doesn't initially say anything, right? Some time passes. It's one of those like, hey, this has only been five seconds, but it feels like about, you know, like 15 minutes. One of those like I didn't study for this quiz type of things, right? And like I gave an answer and is it right? I don't know. I'm going to kind of wait and see. But then Jesus answers her and he does so in a way that is at least initially incredibly Surprising! Jesus begins leading the conversation down a path that takes us from 30,000 feet and seeing God's heart for the nations to seeing the heart of God for individuals. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right. Perhaps this is a bit surprising to you. I know it was surprising to me the first time I read this passage. You do not know what to do with this. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this story is not so much about taking uh, literal children and literal bread and literal dogs and like playing this scene out, but it's about the Jewish people and the kingdom and the Gentile, right? The, The Jewish people viewed, even at times referred to, Gentiles like those in Tyre and in Sidon as dogs. And so, at least at first, the words of Jesus seem incredibly offensive. Only they're not. Okay? Because Jesus instead uses this, this imagery that so oftentimes has been communicated from one side of the fence to the other. He embraces the imagery, and he refers to this woman and her people as, as dogs, only not street dogs. That's not the way he says it. But more like the household pet that oftentimes finds himself gathered underneath the table of these, of these homes. Thus, it's meant not to be offensive the way that Jesus uses it, but more endearing while at the same time probing. And based on the woman's response, it looks like she gets this because she totally embraces the story. She totally embraces the story and the characters in it as Jesus presents it. She doesn't argue, right? She doesn't get angry. How, how dare you call me a dog, what are you trying to say? That's not what she does. Now, what does that help us understand? It helps us understand her, her, her desperateness, right? Because if you're, if you're coming to the one guy who's capable of working a miracle that's ultimately going to bring about the wellness of your daughter, man, say what you want. Just heal, just heal my daughter. But we see that she instead embraces the title. And in doing so, she points out the availability of loose morsels from the table for the puppies resting underneath. Look at verse 28. And she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table get a little bit of bread. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily taking the the whole loaf off the table and just tossing it under there for the dogs to enjoy while the children go hungry, but we are talking about morsels, that find their way onto the floor that the dogs are able to then enjoy for themselves. This also says something, not, about the, not only about the posture that she approaches Jesus with, not only about her embracing the story and understanding the distinction, right? But also about the sufficiency of God, right? That even a morsel is capable of bringing about this most marvelous result, I just need a taste. I just need a bit. It doesn't take much. You are sufficient. We see the sufficiency displayed through through this passage. For this statement, Jesus said, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter, and she went home and found the child laying in bed, and the demon Gone. Essentially, she has embraced her role in the story while drawing it out a little further. Yes, hey, I'm a little dog, so I get some of the children's crumbs. Jesus pushes her towards this bold and beautiful display of faith. Everyone has been seeking to trap Jesus in his words. And finally, finally, this woman. Does it? But she does so only because that's the desire of Jesus. He desires that she would trap him in his words at this particular point. That she wouldn't storm off, offended and angry at the illustration that Jesus has presented. But instead, she embraces it. Right? Hey, hey, whatever. You can. Do, that's totally cool with me. I'm fine with with being the dog under the table. I just want a morsel. I love what one commentator, Kent Hughes. Um, says uh, in relation to, you know, connection, connecting the interaction with Jesus um, in this statement and in Matthew 11, verse 12. I think we're going to put this up because it is lengthy, and I want you guys to be able to read along uh, with me. This is what Kent Hughes has to say. This is incredible. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of heaven is for those like this woman who are willing to spend untiring energy in pursuit of spiritual things. They are persistent. It is for those like the paralytic's friends. Remember him earlier on in Mark's gospel? When told that they could not get get him through... Uh, climbed upon the roof and tore through the 18 inches of sod and branches, lowering him to Christ's feet. Jesus desires such faith. And so, as we walk our way through this portion of Mark chapter 7, we can come out of this saying that our desire, in light of Christ's desire for this kind of faith, our desire is for this kind of faith, right? Our desire for you and for me, for God's people gathered together in this room this morning. We all read this passage and go, yeah, I man, that's what I desire that my faith would look like. That simply a morsel is enough, right? That that's all that I need that I would be persistent and bold, believing that you are capable of working this miracle. This kind of faith is a gift, and it is bold, and it is humble. one One of my favorite hymns, we sing it often, perhaps you're familiar with it, it says this, that nothing in my hands I bring right? What's the rest of it say? Simply to the cross I cling, right? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. When we understand that we have nothing to cling to, that we have no moral high ground, that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, right? That we have no obedience to present to the Lord, to merit, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness, man, we cling to the cross, right? And we boast in it. What does Paul say, man? He says, my only boast is Christ. My only boast is the cross. I have nothing in and of myself to lay claim to. It's all a result of your gracious, your gracious work. This is a type of faith that is rooted in a confidence in the word of Christ. Because what does she do? She goes home. Jesus says, go home. She goes home, and she finds her daughter lying in bed with the demon gone. So so let's continue the story, okay? Let's look at verses 31 through 37. This is a much shorter section, so don't freak out, okay? We're good. Um, Is everybody okay? Are we all right? Awesome. This is such great stuff. Christ's good work and the right response to transformation. Christ's good work and a right response to transformation—a beautiful faith. Then he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And he brought to him and brought to him uh, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus does this like really interesting thing. And he puts his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. And he said to him, a that is, be open. And so a few observations that I want us to make here as we kind of begin closing out our time together. Number one, Jesus expresses through this portion of the text, both communion with God and sorrow over sin. Jesus expresses both communion with God, with the Father, and sorrow over sin through his healing of this man. Right? What does Jesus do as this man is brought to him? Well, he takes him to the side, and then he, he places his hands on him, his fingers into his ears, spitting and touches his tongue, and then what does he do? He looks up to heaven, and he what? Ah, <sighs> he sighs. It seems like a fairly simple thing, doesn't it? And it is. But I think it teaches us some amazing things about the connection and the communion between Jesus and the Father. Right, that here we see Jesus displaying this reality that his life is always in accord with the will of the Father. There is this expressed reliance on the Father as he, as he looks up to heaven and sighs. Right? There's this the same reliance that we see as he looks up into heaven and he blesses the, the bread and the fish and he breaks them and they are multiplied. right There's this beautiful relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. A relationship that has existed on into eternity past and on through eternity future. This perfect community, this perfect communion, this perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. That's the first thing that we see. So practically, what does that encourage you and I towards? Well, it encourages us towards communion with God right with the Father and we are welcomed into communion with the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus we look here and we see man this is the perfect community when we talk tra- when we talk relationship when we talk community everyone loves community that's kind of a hot word right like nobody right? hey anybody in here hate community anybody here not want to be a part of like really awesome really like encouraging solid community nobody's going to say that right? Because there's something in us that desires community. So what is that community that we desire? For you guys who are new on campus, man, here's the deal. And like the rest of us, man, we can all fall into this trap, right? But the deal is this, that there is opportunity to find ourselves in poor community, right? That we feel is meeting our expectations and our desires for a season of time, but it will leave us ultimately unsatisfied, right? The ultimate community. Right? The Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is the community that our hearts are longing for, that our hearts desire. And so so embrace the community that God has welcomed you into through the blood of Christ. Repent and believe, right? And realize all of the eternal benefits, temporal and eternal benefits, of this community that God welcomes us into. Here we see Jesus enjoying this community. And then we see Christ Through his sigh, not only demonstrating the value, the eternal value of the community and the enjoyment of community, said community, with the Father, but also we see him displaying compassion for the man, feeling the effects of the fall. I feel like we say, we go to the same passages like all the time, okay? Like that's what biblical theology looks like, okay? Like Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man and all of its after effects that you and I continue to wrestle with and feel and deal with every single day that lead to things like this, brokenness, right? Broken tongues and, and broken ears. Christ has compassion because he sees here up close yet again the reality of sin's effects on our world and he has compassion. Jesus here embraces the interruption from ministry, and in doing so, he reminds us of what it's all about. Jesus here, while it appears as though he initially is being interrupted, I love the note that the Gospel Transformation Bible provides for this passage. It reminds us that when we see such interruptions, that it's not actually an interruption, but it's what it's all about. Here we're seeing on a, on a micro scale, on a small scale, the big picture that Christ has come to restore a fallen and broken world, a fallen and broken people. That's what he's doing. And so here we see the consequences of man's rebellion. We see the consequences of sin on a life, in a world, and what does Jesus do, man? He reverses it, right? He, he undoes it to the point at the end they're all going, man, Jesus does all things well. What a colossal understatement, but what else do you say? Jesus does all things well. What we see Jesus doing here on a, on a, on a small level is what we know that he will ultimately accomplish on a much, much, much grander level right? As as we are restored, we are currently now, if we have repented and believed, experiencing the benefits of right relationship with God, a restoration of that relationship that was broken back in Genesis chapter 3, right? But, But we continue to feel the effects of sin on a broken world. We look around and what is the ultimate evidence of it? Well, we see death. The wages of sin is death. Death is still here. And so we can rest assured that the resurrection benefits have not ultimately been manifest in this place. Why? Well, because death is still here. But there's a day coming when even that will be undone. And what can we cling to to know that that is true? Well, the resurrected Christ. Right? That Jesus has defeated sin. That Jesus has defeated death that Jesus overcomes all of the consequences of man's rebellion. We see it here on a smaller level, but man, we are going to witness it one day on a cosmic level. And that's incredible. That is truly incredible. Mark is encouraging his original audience as he does us, a people from all backgrounds that Christ the sacrificial servant is the culmination, that he brings hope to the nations and the strength of his people as they live lives of missional intentionality. As they live lives of missional intentionality. And so let's close with this idea. Let's walk away this morning getting these things. God's heart is for the nation's. God's heart is for the nations, and his plan is to rescue a people that will be a diverse representation of humanity, made up of every tribe and tongue on earth. Thus, a regenerate heart seeks the nations. A regenerate heart, a heart that has been made new and has been made alive, seeks after the nations. Now, here's the beautiful thing, right? If you're here this morning, Carrollton, Georgia, living in this area, maybe even on this campus, man, you have the nations at your front door. Two days ago, I was sitting at Starbucks on campus, and um, I was uh, just kind of doing some work and drinking a cup of coffee, and there were a couple of students who were obviously students outside. Obviously international students because they were speaking like fluent French to one another. No English. Like I didn't understand a word that they were saying. Definitely French, right? And so I, I kind of interjected myself into the conversation and I said, hey, you guys are obviously international students. Like what's, what's going on? Like how's your time in Carrollton? When did you guys get here? And they, we had a conversation and they shared their story and they're here for a year and they were wonderful, very pleasant. A handful of you other guys met them as well. Here's my point. Every year when August rolls around, man, there are students from all over the globe that fly here to Carrollton, Georgia to study for six months or for a year. And so what I'm encouraging you towards here, in light of what the scriptures encourage us towards here, is a pursuit of intentional international relationships. Why? Well, because that's what a regenerate heart does. A regenerate heart loves the nations. Man, next summer, many of you guys are going to have ample opportunity to load a plane and fly to Africa or go to Europe or East Asia or maybe it's just up the eastern seaboard or maybe it's out west. You're going to be able to go. You're going to be able to, to minister to and engage the nations. But what I'm here to tell you to, or this morning is that we need to open our eyes to the nation's presence here in Carrollton and to pursue them with a gospel fervor and then an a gospel tensionality. If you read through the end of this passage, and I've got to close because we're way out of time, man. Like, I'm, 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 I'm over it. But if you look at the end of this passage, Jesus, after healing this man, he tells him, here's the deal. Don't go and don't tell anybody. Don't say anything. He implores him to do so. And what does the man do? Man, he breaks the rule, right? And who can blame him? Like, the guy couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, and now he can do both. Jesus is amazing, right? He goes and he tells and people are amazed and they make that that massive understatement that Jesus does all things well, which we say yes and amen, he absolutely does, more than we could ever imagine. A right response to God's gospel work in our lives and in our heart is a fervor in which we go and we proclaim of the goodness and the work of Christ. That's the reality, man. That's what we see here in Mark chapter 7. Jesus tells them not to do it, and they're like, hey, like, I can't not do this, right? Like, I've experienced something truly amazing. So if your hearts are alive in here this morning, man, if, you, if we are not living with a gospel intentionality, then we are not getting, like, the true nature of the gospel. We're just not. And so let us consider our position and what Christ has done for us by way of the cross to bring us into right relationship with God. God's heart is for people. Thus, a regenerate heart seeks people. A regenerate heart desires relationships that glorify God, evangelistic, gospel-centered relationships. This is displayed through his one-to-one conversation with the Gentile woman as well as his compassion to the deaf man in Mark chapter 7. A right response to Jesus is a reliant spirit and a redeemed tongue that speaks of his goodness and grace. This man's tongue was set free from captivity. And as it is set free, it proclaims the work of Jesus. And so let us, as we close our time together this morning, right, let us consider the gospel at work in our lives. Let's consider how the gospel transforms the way that we relate with and seek after people. Here's the deal. I told you I was going to mention these cards again. Because on these cards, there are opportunities for you to respond to what God's word says today. Every week we come and we close our time by saying, listen, God's word calls us to respond. And so maybe that looks like for you, like checking one of these top boxes up here. Okay, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe for you, you know, you look at this and you go, man, how do I respond to God's word today? Maybe it is make gospel intentional relationships among people, stepping out of my comfort zone, pursuing after those uh, who, are, who are marginalized and undesirable. Those who don't know Christ. And we might think, man, they are too far gone. That's not what we see in Mark chapter 7. Or we see Jesus going into Tyre and Sidon, Gentile pagan hotbeds. We couldn't talk the religious leaders into the kingdom. And now you see these two display a bold and beautiful faith. And so, man, let us consider the power of the gospel to work in the lives and the hearts of men. How is God's word? calling you, you, to respond today. Every week, um, we go and we take the Lord's Supper. We invite God's people to take the Lord's Supper as we celebrate communion with Him and communion with one another. And so we're going to invite you to do that as we approach the table prayerfully and joyfully remembering the power of the resurrection and celebrating this reality that we have a King is enthroned on high, and he is coming back for his church, okay? We go to the table and we celebrate that every week. That's one way that we respond. Another way that we are going to respond from this point going forward is by turning these in, by putting pen to paper. How does God's word call me to respond this morning?